Hello, and welcome to Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News. We're a graduate student-led organization at Harvard University focused on generating discussions between scientists, other experts, and enthusiasts. Today, we discuss common questions relating to the recent coronavirus vaccines. I'm Melissa Kant. I'm a graduate student in physics at MIT. My name is Chad Stein. I'm a PhD student in the Biological and Biomedical Sciences PhD program at Harvard University. Uh, I'm Samantha. I'm a Master's of Science student in Environmental Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Edward, and I'm a Immunology Master's student. While the world enters another phase of lockdown, COVID-19 cases continue to rise both domestically and internationally. In the U.S., amidst the third wave of the coronavirus, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths remain high. One in five hospitals has a full or nearly full ICU, and businesses remain closed or are being shut down yet again. On December 17th, the CDC reported a record all-time high of 247,544 new cases. It is possible the CDC will report new highs as we see cases resulting from holiday gatherings. One clear solution to curb infections is for an effective vaccine to be made available. Progress in vaccine development has been steady, and 64 vaccines are now in clinical trials. Of these, 18 are in phase three large-scale efficacy tests. The FDA has recently issued two emergency use authorizations, or EUAs, for COVID vaccines. On December 11th, the FDA issued its first EUA for the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine which allows for widespread distribution within the U.S. One week later, on December 18th, the FDA issued an EUA for a second COVID-19 vaccine from the Cambridge-based biotech company Moderna. These two COVID vaccines are the first mRNA vaccines approved for widespread human use. This is a historic moment in not just the fight against COVID, but also in science and medicine. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, was first identified on January 9th, 2020, and its genetic sequence published shortly thereafter by scientists in China. In 12 short months, scientists have developed two vaccines for the coronavirus that have now received emergency approval in the US. With the recent emergency approvals and the newness of mRNA vaccines, is there anything we should know about the science behind them? Today, we're gonna to be talking about mRNA vaccines for coronavirus. And this has been in the news a lot recently, and we think it's important to really break down uh, the basic science of what's going on here and why, why this is such an important development in the treatment of COVID-19. So part of my thesis project is focused on mRNA. So this is near and dear to my heart. So I really wanted to start off by explaining why we care what mRNA is. To do that, I wanna start with a metaphor. And because I love food, it's going to be all about pizza. So to explain what mRNA is, first we have to take a step back and explain what DNA is. DNA is the genetic material that makes up every cell in our body and has the instructions for life. However, it's not in an especially useful form the way it is. So DNA is super important, but the cell can't really do much with it right away. So that's where the role of mRNA comes in. So imagine DNA is a really, really fancy cookbook and it's locked away very securely in a library. And not only is it locked up, it's actually in a, it's in a language that 
you maybe don't understand. So for me, let's say it's in German. I don't speak German. Of course, there are people who are, but that's beside the point. So let's say I want to make a recipe from this very fancy cookbook. I need somebody to take the German and write it down in English for me. But they're not going to write it in a fancy cookbook. They're going to write it on an index card. And the index card isn't really quite as sturdy as a cookbook. And this is equivalent to saying that DNA is more stable than mRNA. So my, my German friend is going to write down this recipe for me. And I'm going to have an index card, and that's all I'm going to have. And you know, if I get it wet, that's a problem. And if I accidentally rip it, that's a problem. And this is all to say that mRNA is typically quite unstable. And this will come up later, but this is why we've heard that these mRNA vaccines need to be stored at such cold temperatures to make sure that they don't degrade. So once I have this index card with a recipe on it, now I can go into the kitchen and do something with it because I understand the language. So let's say this is a recipe for pizza dough. So I can take the index card, go into my kitchen and start combining all of the ingredients. And at some point out will come pizza dough. And this is equivalent to the process of turning mRNA into protein. And that's exactly what's so exciting about this vaccine. We can inject the mRNA into the body and the body, much like me in the kitchen, will take it and turn it into something useful. In this case, it will be information that will tell our body how to fight the coronavirus should we be infected by it. So in this way, the coronavirus vaccines that we've been talking about and hearing about are much like me going to the kitchen and making some fresh pizza dough. When you say that mRNA is less stable generally than DNA, is there a difference between in vivo and ex vivo, so in the cell and in the test tube? Yeah, so like I was saying that this, this DNA cookbook I mentioned, it's stored in a very secure area. Um, and in the cell, that would be the nucleus. You know, it's closed off from everything else. Um, the cell has very sophisticated mechanisms to protect it. So the DNA is very stable. However, RNA, um, both due to its chemical nature and the fact that enzymes have evolved over time to degrade it, means that in the field of RNA, we have a joke that if you look at it the wrong way, it'll break down, which I'm intimately familiar with from my thesis work. Um, so in a test tube, we have to be especially careful because something like a piece of dust could degrade the RNA, which is why um, you'll hear about all of these difficult freezing conditions that need to be maintained in order for it to be useful for injection into a human. Could we just explain a little more on why uh, messenger RNA is different than just traditional RNA? Yeah, that's a really great question. So mRNA or messenger RNA is, is actually a subset of all RNAs. So there's this broad term RNA, and then mRNA is just a part of that. Um, so like I was explaining earlier, an mRNA provides instructions for how to make pizza dough. Um, but there are lots and lots of other kinds of RNAs in the cell. Um, so there's things called ribosomal RNAs or rRNAs that are actually involved in the pizza making process, but aren't instructive for it. Um, there's also RNAs that provide regulatory functions and are never made into proteins. Um, there's RNAs that help silence entire chromosomes called long non-coding RNAs. Um, so mRNAs in some ways are the most relevant for a vaccine production, but there are entire fields of study that focus on all these other different kinds of RNAs as well. We have heard that the coronavirus vaccine is an mRNA vaccine. Can you tell us how it's different from the more conventional vaccines? Yeah, so 
again, this is something that I think is really exciting to talk about because this is the first time in human history that mRNA vaccines have been used on a wide scale in humans. So this is a really a big scientific breakthrough in some ways, even though the research has been going on for decades. Uh, so a traditional vaccine might contain a small part of a virus or bacteria, but in protein form. So basically somebody else in a factory somewhere has produced a small piece of the pathogen, and then they're directly injecting that into the human. However, the mRNA vaccine is taking sort of a step back from that and encoding the instructions for that piece of pathogen. And it's important to note that it's not actually encoding the whole pathogen. That would be bad because that would cause disease, but it's just causing, or it's just encoding a part that's small enough for your immune system to recognize once your own cells turn that information into a protein. So it's sort of taking a step back um, in the transfer of genetic information from regular vaccines. So if I understand correctly, the vaccine tells our cells to make a part of this virus, which then gets picked up by our immune cells and thus our immune cells get trained in a way. So we make the virus exactly. parts of it. Very interesting. And why haven't we had an mRNA vaccine before? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't think there's one specific answer. Um, so research into this kind of vaccine has been going on for decades, since at least the 90s. And people have proposed using it for other um, pathogens like the flu virus, uh, Zika, rabies, etc. A couple things to note about RNA is that it's more expensive to produce than proteins. So like I was saying earlier, traditional vaccine might contain protein particles, um, which are you know cheap and easy to make. Yeah, so RNA vaccines are more expensive. Um, and because of that, there's also some barriers to distribution, which of course we've been hearing about lately. Um, so there's been a lot of research into how to actually deliver them. And I don't think it was entirely clear that there was a gold standard quite yet, but obviously the companies that are producing them now have done a really great job in formulating that. Uh, it's also worth noting that one of the companies, Moderna, has basically been studying this exact question for the last 10 years. So they have a lot of um, built up knowledge that they were able to use to deploy this very rapidly. So how do you make an mRNA vaccine? This is kind of a hard one to answer because it the, the companies are obviously, you know, they wanna keep close hold on their intellectual property. Um, but from what we do know, there's a couple different ways. So there's enzymatic synthesis and chemical synthesis. Chemical synthesis is you have a machine that essentially, you know, quite literally prints RNA. And basically it'll go through a cycle of reactions and add on one letter after another until you have the entire RNA that you want. Um, that's incredibly expensive and there's a lot of inefficiencies in the system, but that's one option. The other one is enzymatic synthesis. And this is basically where you again, using decades of basic research on actually bacteriophages or bacterial viruses, you can have an enzymatic reaction whereby a, a bacteriophage protein takes a bit of DNA that you synthesize and turn it into RNA for you. Um, so this is something similar that happens in our cells. It's called transcription. And this is what my thesis is on. So it's very near and dear to my heart. But basically you have a kind of a cheap protein that you know is very accurate. It's able to take a bit of cheap material, which is DNA, and turn it into something that's much less stable, RNA. And in that way, you can 
make a lot of RNA very quickly. So do we isolate the viral DNA first and, and then make mRNA from that? Yeah, so you isolate the bacterial protein and it's called a polymerase because it polymerizes the synthesis of RNA. Um, and then essentially you have that protein and then a bit of DNA. And because it's much more stable, DNA is a lot cheaper and easier to synthesize. Um, so that's actually fairly routine, both in clinical settings and in research labs. And this mRNA only targets a certain part of the virus. So with the previous vaccines that are not the mRNA vaccines, did we also generally target components of the virus as well? Or have we ever made vaccines that targeted the entire virus? Does it also depend on the size, I guess? Some viruses are small, some are big, right? Yeah, so I think this is another reason why this vaccine was able to be developed and deployed so quickly is that if we think about RNA, in some ways it's a one-dimensional molecule. So basically it's just a series of letters and it's 3D shape, at least in the case of um, vaccination, might not matter so much. Whereas proteins, they have very specific shapes and forms and folds. And if you've ever seen, you know, that's that famous picture of the coronavirus that is everywhere, um, you'll note that the, the spiky bits are very well formed and they're, if it was to be any other shape, the virus wouldn't work as well. So basically, instead of having to guess which part of the virus in three dimensions would create the best immune response, we can use this one dimensional molecule, RNA, and try a bunch of different things very quickly. And that's another advantage of mRNA vaccines over conventional vaccines. As far as whether or not vaccines have been developed using an entire virus, to be honest, I'm not sure. And this is coming from my you know, lack of knowledge in epidemiology and virology per se, but I'm much more of an RNA person. We've heard about the spike protein of the virus and that the vaccines that have been made so far target this, this protein. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What part of the virus is this protein? Yeah, so this is a really important protein on the virus's outside. Um, so again, if you think back to that picture that everyone's probably seen at this point of the virus floating out in space, um, the, the pointy bits are the spike protein. Uh, and this is actually where coronaviruses get their name from. Um, so if you look at these under a special kind of microscope, they look like crowns. Corona means crown in Spanish. Yeah, so essentially this is this is to say that the spike protein assists the virus into getting into human cells or bat cells or whatever organism it's infecting. So basically the spike protein, which is this long protrusion that comes from the virus's center, binds to a certain receptor on human cells, and that's called ACE2. And basically the interaction between ACE2 and spike protein and some other um, proteins that aren't part of the vaccine um, are what basically trick the human cell into allowing the coronavirus to get inside. Um, so without the spike protein, then the virus can't actually get into human cells and replicate and cause all the problems that are associated with COVID-19. So if the spike protein changes, to me, it sounds like these vaccines might not work. And we know that viruses mutate all the time. Different viruses have different mutation rates. Uh, the flu virus, for example, we know it mutates quite quickly but we've heard about the mutation that has been growing in percentage of infections in the UK, a mutant that has a mutation in the spike protein. So 
you know, knowing this, do we know if the vaccine is going to be effective against this uh, new mutant at all? Yeah, so you raise a really great point, and that's that we need to keep in mind that viruses are mutating all the time, especially RNA viruses like the coronavirus, where they um, have some inherent tendency to mutate over time. And of course, anytime the genetic information changes, there's a possibility that it could evade our defenses, whether that's our own immunity or the vaccines that we're giving prophylactically. However, in this case, it's important to note that there's no evidence that that will actually happen. And in fact, because the mRNA encodes, again, this three-dimensional spike protein, there's multiple places where antibodies might be able to be developed in human cells or in the human body. So basically, even if one or even a few places on the spike protein are mutated, then it's likely that there's still plenty of antibodies that could be made um, to defend against it in humans once the vaccine is given. I have to say, that does make me feel better, you know, hoping that the vaccine that hopefully we will be receiving in the next few months is going to be, you know, worth it and, and protect us from the coronavirus. Now, I want to discuss the vaccines that we will likely be getting. So we currently have two options. So one is Pfizer and the other one is Moderna. These are the ones that have gotten the emergency use authorization. We know that both of these are mRNA vaccines, but it seems like there are differences between them, even from you know storage temperature to how much uh, they're likely to protect you even after the first shot. So what are the differences between these two vaccines? So before we talk about the differences, I think maybe we could discuss the similarities first. Um, so in many ways, these two vaccines are actually remarkably similar in the fact that they encode mRNA or they contain mRNA that encode for the same protein, which again is the spike protein. Um, they're enclosed within lipid nanoparticles which is the way that they get from you know, the tip of the needle into our cells. Um, and they have incredibly high efficacy. So this was the number that everyone heard that was about 95%. And both of them have that high of a, a success rate. Um, so where the differences come in, again, this is somewhat difficult to answer because the companies want to keep their intellectual property secret um, but I think we can deduce that the differences mainly come from the lipid nanoparticle formulations and perhaps some of the modifications that are put on the mRNA to make it more stable. So I was mentioning much earlier that sort of left out on its own, RNA tends to degrade, whether or not it's spontaneous or through some contaminant. Um, so there have been ways that companies have been studying to chemically modify the RNA so that it encodes for the same protein, but it's more stable in its formulation. And additionally, if we were to just inject mRNA by itself, it would probably be immediately degraded by our body. Um, so these lipid nanoparticles are really important for making sure that they actually get into our cells and translate the spike protein like we want them to. Uh, so the short answer is that the differences are actually probably quite small and um, until the patents are released, we might never know for certain. Um, and just to be, again, more specific about the, the cold chain differences, um, the, the Pfizer vaccine needs to be kept at what has been called ultra-cold temperatures, whereas the Moderna vaccine can be stored um, at a much 
comparatively warmer, um, negative four degrees Celsius, which is typical of your average household freezer. Earlier, I mentioned that we need two vaccines. For most vaccines that we get, we don't get two shots. Why do we need two shots for this? There are definitely shots that we need to get multiple times throughout our lifetime. The first one that comes to mind is tetanus, where you have to get the booster shot every few years. It's not clear whether this is something that's inherent to the coronavirus or the vaccines themselves. Um, But basically, the idea with vaccinating multiple times is that the first one primes the immune system and the second injection creates the long-term memory um, so that even if you face this virus many months or years down the road, hopefully your immune system will be able to remember the the three-dimensional shape of the spike protein that you saw. I see. So the two shots are the same, but the first one introduces you to the virus and the second one sort of gets you ready. So can we mix the two vaccines? So if I get a Moderna one first, can I get a Pfizer one next? Yeah, so while that would be convenient, I think because we only have data on the Moderna, Moderna, and Pfizer, Pfizer regimen, I think for now it's going to be recommended that you only get one or the other and not mix and match. And perhaps in the future, if people choose to study that and it turns out that they can mute interchangeably, maybe we'll be able to do that. But for now, I think um, the strategy is going to be to give people from one company rather than both. And do we know currently how long they will likely be effective for? Yeah, this is kind of one of those unknowable questions because you know, people only started getting the vaccines a few months ago in clinical trials. So in order to know whether or not it'll provide protection for years, we'll have to wait years to see. Um, based on other vaccinations, I believe it's probably likely that it will be effective for quite some time. Um, but, you know, quite some time is not very quantitative. So I can't give much of a more specific answer than that. Certainly. So I think the speed in which the vaccines were developed have scared a lot of people. And maybe some people will think that due diligence is not being done. What are some of the inherent risks with mRNA vaccines? Are there inherent risks that these vaccines have that DNA vaccines don't? So it's not clear that there's any specific inherent risk to these mRNA vaccines. Um, The formulations are slightly different from what's used in traditional vaccines. Um, So again, the lipid nanoparticles and the modified mRNAs are slightly different, but in terms of overall risk, I think it's, you know, basically on par with what we might expect from a traditional vaccine. Do these mRNA vaccines alter our cells' DNA? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer is almost certainly no. Um, so in my metaphor earlier, I was talking about DNA being off, you know, in a faraway library locked away, and that's the nucleus of the cell. And In the case of the vaccine, the mRNA is hanging out in our kitchen or in the cytoplasm of the cell. So basically the the mRNA from the vaccine and our DNA never get a chance to see each other because they're in different parts of the cell. And what about the allergic reactions that people have gotten? I think we have heard some news about a few healthcare workers who have gotten allergic reactions, severe allergic reactions from the vaccine. 
Yeah. So while there has been a couple severe anaphylactic reactions from the vaccine, this is by no means the norm. Um, vaccine allergies just on a general scale are really, really rare. And um, overall in the uh, Pfizer clinical trials, there was only one person out of almost 20,000 participants who had an anaphylactic reaction. Um, and in the for less severe allergies in those same clinical trials, um, there was only about 0.63% of participants who reported allergic reactions within the trial group and 0.51% in the placebo group. So there was not a significant difference in allergy reactions between the two groups. Um, a lot of the side effects of the vaccines are of these vaccines are similar to any other vaccine that you might receive. And it's really just a byproduct of the immune system being activated and um, preparing its defense against this the virus. So those symptoms are mostly just fevers, chills, headache, and then um, pain or soreness at the injection site from contact with the needle. Uh, but overall, allergy reactions are on a wide scale thought to be very rare and um, don't, should not occur in the vast majority of people, except for those that maybe already have known um, aggressive reactions to vaccinations. Thank you so much. I actually learned a lot today. Uh, I feel much more knowledgeable and confident going into uh, hopefully being vaccinated in the next few months. Thanks for the discussions, guys. We understand that many people feel confused and anxious about the COVID-19 pandemic and apprehensive about receiving the vaccines. In this episode, we tried our best to give you a full picture of the science behind it as we currently understand it. But we encourage you to find out more. If you have any lingering questions or would like to delve deeper into the topics we covered, please visit the following websites for more up-to-date information. For general information, we recommend the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC's, and the World Health Organization, or the WHO's, COVID-19 websites. For demographic and economic data on the effects of COVID-19, please visit the U.S. Census Bureau's website. And for legislation and policy pertaining to the pandemic, the Law Librarians of Congress's Coronavirus Resource Guide is a great reference. For any specific concerns, please reach out to your healthcare provider or your local health department. The links to all the websites mentioned can be found in the show notes.